It is super to see you guys today. We have a super text to look at. I think it's going to be a super service. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. Hey, turn to Acts chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some super Bibles for you that you can borrow. And uh, I think they're even marked to the passage for this morning. So just raise your hand and we'll get one into your hands. And if you don't have your own Bible, we would absolutely love to give you one. We have brand new Super new ones we can give you on your way out the door. Um, Turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at the end of the chapter this morning, verses 26 through 40. And uh, I'm going to read a series of words as you're turning there. And then I'm going to tell you what they all have in common. You ready to play a little game? So radical, epic, revolutionary transformative, impactful, life-changing, ultimate, extreme, awesome, emergent, extraordinary, alternative, innovative, and on the edge. Now, to me, these all sound kind of like ad copy for the next installment of the new Marvel movie, right? Or maybe uh, the most recent release of some kind of viral video game. But in reality, all of these words that I found are currently being used by pastors and by Christian leaders and authors to describe the kind of Christian life that we should all be aspiring to. Now, I have to say that that just sounds exhausting to me and unnecessary, actually, because I want to kind of set the bar just a little bit lower, maybe, for us as a church. So rather than radical I really want us to aim for regular, okay? Rather than, you know, for sure, I think we should try to avoid extraordinary, and I just want us to aim for ordinary. And in fact, my prayer for this body and for every one of us as born-again believers, my prayer is that we can be as absolutely ordinary in our faith as we possibly can. So this morning, we're going to look at achieving the Ordinary. Now, I know this might start out sounding a bit strange, but if I haven't lost you yet, I know that you know, the word ordinary certainly has to be one of the loneliest and the least exciting words in all of our vocabulary. I mean, who really wants a bumper sticker that announces to the whole neighborhood that, you know, my child is an ordinary student at, you know, Babbling Brook Elementary or whatever. Um, so I hope I've piqued your interest because... This morning, as we finish up in Acts chapter 8, we're going to look at the ordinary story of an ordinary Christian worker doing very ordinary Christian ministry on an ordinary day in his ordinary life as an ordinary Christian. And I think that what we're going to see is that the ordinary Christian life is not only actually pretty extraordinary by the world standards, but it's really the most biblical life by the Lord's standards. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to, uh, to bless our time. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, Lord, uh, each and every week just for the place that you've provided, Lord, and this time that you have set aside and ordained for us to come together, Lord, as your people corporately, and, uh, and to allow you, Lord, to minister to us through your word individually. And so we pray, Lord... 
uh, as we studied this morning, that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray that we would be open to the things that he would share and speak to our hearts. And uh, Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what was happening so far in Acts chapter 8, down in Samaria, was astounding. Remember, we said it was like what was happening in Jerusalem back in those first few days of the early church. Just jump to verse 1 and track with me. It says that there was great persecution that arose against the church that was at Jerusalem. All the people were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 5, it says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He preached Christ to them. And look in verse 6, it says that multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Verse 14, it says that when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard about what was going on in Samaria, it says that they sent Peter and John. Verse 15, it says that when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 17, they received the Holy Spirit. So this was Pentecost part two, right? But it had happened in the hated region amongst the hated people of Samaria. And the Lord was doing this work we talked about of restoration and of reconciliation between these two people groups. He was healing almost seven centuries of animosity that had developed as he united these people together in the unity of the Spirit and in their fellowship of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And all of it was as a result of the faithful ministry of one man, Philip the deacon. Right? He was displaced, remember, from his home there in Jerusalem. He was just up there faithfully sharing the Lord Jesus wherever he went with whoever would listen. At the tail end of our text last time, it said of the apostles Peter and John and the whole Jerusalem gang that had probably come with them, in verse 25 it says that when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, that they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many places or villages of the Samaritans. So here the big shots had headed back, right, leaving suddenly Pastor Philip now to minister to this growing flock. And then in the very next verse, verse 26, in our text this morning, it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Now, admittedly, right, this is not at all what we might have expected. It may not seem to us to make much sense. Philip, we just said, he was the frontline man, right? He seemed to be utterly indispensable. And yet, it was at precisely this moment that God called him to leave that area during what was nothing short of a great spiritual awakening, right? It said that multitudes of people were coming to Christ, and yet the Lord sovereignly and supernaturally, using this angelic messenger, he redirects Philip to another area of ministry. And yet, Notice the text is very clear. This isn't in another metropolitan hub that's bursting with you know, anxious seekers. It's an area of ministry along a road headed further south 
toward the city of Gaza. And then in case there was any confusion, look what Luke added there for us, his own little commentary at the end of the verse. Just in case we weren't sure, Luke is sure to point out that this is desert. And in fact, historians tell us there were actually two different roads that went from Jerusalem to Gaza and that this road that the angel specifically directs Philip to was the one that was most seldom used. So none of this adds up, right? Leaving now doesn't make sense. Heading for the desert doesn't seem to make sense. Taking a deserted road into the desert seems to make even less sense. And yet, how clearly the Lord was divinely directing Philip, making it unmistakable to him that he was the one that was sending him. And what's interesting, I think, as I thought about that, is we don't notice that Luke mentions God didn't command Philip in the first place to go to the Samaritans, which we could see might have made some sense, but God does sovereignly direct Philip to go down to Gaza, which makes absolutely no sense. And just reminds us, of course, that God's ways are what? Not our ways. And very often, he will interrupt our plans and interrupt our service, the things that we're doing. And he'll do it sometimes in very remarkable ways that perhaps we find difficult to understand. And so I think we wouldn't be at all surprised if the next thing we read in the text was Philip trying somehow to reason with this angelic messenger, right? Maybe pointing out all of the good things that were happening there. You know, he said, what about all my followers, Right? You know, I'm a, I'm a huge influencer here. I've worked so hard to develop my personal brand here in Samaria. You know, this entire city is getting turned on to God, and you're asking me to go to the desert? There's nothing there. Now, I don't know about you, but I know it's true for me. It's very often when I'm struggling with some specific direction from the Lord... I have these three lame excuses that seem to be what I use every time. First of all, there's, well, not now. It's like, you know, great idea, Lord, but the timing is just not very good for me. Maybe we could revisit this a little bit later. It's just me, right? Or instead of not now, there's the infamous, not me. Right? Well, Lord, I totally agree that this thing needs to be done, and yet I'm maybe just not your best guy to do it. I think there's other guys who are probably much more qualified than I am. Now, if we get past not now and not me, the fallback position is sometimes, well, not there. <laughs> Lord, I totally agree that those people need to hear about you, and yet that's just a little bit outside of my personal comfort zone. Maybe we could just try it here instead. I'm just glad that Philip didn't struggle the way that I might have struggled because look what it says, just the very first few words of verse 27. It says, so he arose and went. That was it. And I read in those words just a sense of a bit of a gentle rebuke, right? There was no discussion. There were no follow-up questions. He just obeyed this divine direction. And notice the angel hadn't even said why the Lord was sending Philip to the desert. He simply said, arise and go. And Philip simply what? Arose and went. 
And this, of course, is the key for us. If, if you struggle, like most people say they struggle, with knowing God's will for a specific situation, just know this. God's will is always for us to obey one step at a time what he tells us we're supposed to do one step at a time. So we can start by simply being obedient with whatever's right in front of us. And it's absolutely true that for Philip, leaving this fruitful ministry to go down here to a deserted place certainly seemed foolish from a human perspective, but it is wisdom when it's directed by God. Now, God rarely gives us the full story, doesn't he? And I think that's mostly because he knows that we're not ready for it yet. He'll say, go down to the desert, and once you do that, then we'll talk about what your next step is. And this is all part of why the ordinary Christian life is so exciting. Because we never really know what's next as we're walking in obedience. And I'm sure we can all think back to our experience with the Lord of a time maybe where he asked us to step out and do something. And maybe we obeyed and we did it even though it didn't seem to make any sense. And then once we got there and started doing it, we were sure it didn't make any sense, right? But there we were, stuck. We're right in the middle of it and we're doing it only to watch God prove he is so faithful as he brings us through it. And in the process, he teaches us things about ourselves. He teaches us things about him. And when we look back on the experience, we cannot imagine not having done that. And yet, if we're honest, we probably wouldn't have had the experience and we wouldn't have experienced the blessing if he had told us up front everything that was coming our way. And my point in all of that is that God created us He knows us. He knows how to get the best out of us and to bless us in the process. Just that process of that ordinary obedience. So verse 27, Philip arose, he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, Um, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So somewhere along the route, Philip catches up with this caravan. And I love that word, behold, here in verse 27. It's kind of a special Greek language nuance. It's used mostly by Matthew and often by Luke. And whenever we see it in the scriptures, it means that God is at work And the author wants us to pay attention to this. Because behold, Philip wasn't the only one who was being led by the Lord. We see that there was this one particular man of Ethiopia who'd been providentially placed there to meet Philip, though neither one of them had any idea of it yet. And this is kind of an important point because so far throughout the book of Acts, we've seen the Lord, right, starting right off from the day of Pentecost, we've seen the Lord moving on the multitudes, and yet now we see he's moving on an individual. 
And we see him in his individual dealings and his leadings, watching the way God connects one believer and leads them to one seeker in order that they could minister to that one person. And it's interesting, we can think about the fact that God could have just as easily had the angel tell the Ethiopian eunuch how to be saved, they could have left poor Philip out of the whole deal and left him thriving in Samaria. And the point is, though, that God hasn't given the great commission to the angels. God has given that to us as his people. Because angels have never personally experienced God's grace. And so they can't bear witness of what it actually means to be saved. I love in in Peter's epistle, he writes about our salvation and the way that God so graciously deals with the human race. And he says that these are things which angels desire to look into. So the angels are watching and they're wondering at the way that the Lord continues to shower his grace down upon us as humans. And no doubt at the way that he continues to use us to communicate his grace to others, right? One individual at a time. Because what I love here too is this this reminder that God's method for winning people to him doesn't rely on some kind of massive organizational machinery or it doesn't employ worldly attractions it doesn't use any kind of high-powered promotion God uses people he uses ordinary men and women who will simply obey his leading one step at a time even if it means heading out to the deserted desert now As we picture this picture of what's going on here, we shouldn't think of it as though Philip was there in the desert and stumbled upon some single solitary individual driving a little Ben-Hur looking kind of a chariot. Okay, Undoubtedly, what Philip would have come upon was a huge caravan. right? Soldiers and merchants and advisors and assistants. And in the midst of that, a single chariot, which would have stood out, Because it was the chariot of the treasurer, right? The secretary of the treasury, if you will, of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Now, Candace wasn't so much her name, but it was her title. Kind of like the the same, she was the female ruler of Ethiopia in the same way that we would refer to a pharaoh, right, as the ruler of the Egyptians. Now, that Ethiopia was much larger than modern-day Ethiopia. It was what we would have called Nubia, Right, the whole region there along the Nile River, it was the land from which the Queen of Sheba had come. You remember back in 1 Kings 10, she came and she saw the glory of Solomon's kingdom and she professed faith in the God of Israel. And so it's very possible that pieces of the Jewish faith had been passed on throughout the century to educated men like this servant of the queen who was the, as the treasurer, probably was the second most powerful individual in all of Ethiopia. Which again, here he was without question, a successful man and a powerful man. And yet all of his success and all of his power obviously didn't satisfy all of the questions that he had in his life. 
He knew that he needed some spiritual answers in his life, and he was seeking hereafter God. And he had traveled literally hundreds of miles across a desert to go to Jerusalem to find those answers in worship. In fact, historians tell us that during those, those days that the world was full of people who were becoming weary of the many gods and the pagan practices of all the heathen nations where they lived. And so they came to Judaism and they found the one God, the creator God. They found this sense of a clear moral standards that gave life meaning. And what would happen is that if they accepted Judaism and if they would become circumcised, they would become proselytes. Now, if they didn't quite go to that length, but they continued to attend Jewish synagogues and read the Jewish scriptures, then they would be called God-fearers. And yet, there was a problem. Because as a eunuch, which was a cruel yet very common practice, especially in the ancient world amongst court officials, as a eunuch, the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 23 would have prevented him from becoming a full-fledged proselyte to Judaism. So this man probably had accepted the revelation that God had given to Israel as far as he could understand it. He may, he's made this spiritual pilgrimage to Jerusalem probably to seek answers. And yet imagine how he must have been heartbroken when he came to Jerusalem and all he found there was cold formality, right, and religiosity and the way that he probably was asking in his heart, well, you know, how do I, as a sinner, how do I come into fellowship with God? And he probably got no answer back. So I just have this sense that here he is returning back to his home, disappointed and doubtless disillusioned. And yet notice, he had left from Jerusalem and he had one thing that he brought with him that was of great importance. He had a portion of the word of God. It says there he was reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. Now understand, copies of scrolls, right, copies of the scriptures were extremely rare. They were extremely expensive because, of course, they were each and every one of them painstakingly hand-copied. And yet here he had one and he was searching within it. And there's a picture for us here in the Ethiopian eunuch of so many people today who are religious they're seeking after truth. They're maybe even reading through the scriptures, and yet they don't yet have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They're sincere, right? They recognize that there's an emptiness and a longing in their souls, but they're still lost because they don't know how to connect with God. And one author wrote of this man that he was a noble man on a noble search. And we can't say for sure whether the Ethiopian actually found God during his visit to Jerusalem, but he providentially found the word of God. And what we're going to see is it's by reading the word of God that he'd be led to the God of the word. So not finding answers in the law, not finding answers in ritualism or in temple worship. He's riding home in his chariot. His heart is heavy 
hungry. He's pouring through the scriptures. Verse 29 says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. Now, mark this verse in your Bibles or in the Bible of the person sitting next to you because this is an important one. Because it's kind of like a hinge on a huge door. Because up until now, we have seen the Spirit speak through people. Right? As he's fallen upon them and they were speaking praises to the Lord in unknown tongues. Or the way that he empowered Peter and Stephen to testify of the Lord Jesus. And he gave them the words that they would share with the crowds or with the council. But this is the first time in the book of Acts where the Spirit specifically speaks not through a particular person, but to a particular person. See, God had gotten Philip's attention. He had given him his initial direction through the ministry of this angel, but now he would speak specifically and directly to Philip's heart through his Spirit. And we'll see as we continue on that this is more and more so going to become the pattern for the remainder of this book, just as it's the pattern today for our ordinary Christian lives. As the Lord reveals his heart to his people, and we sense the Spirit speaking. Right? We've talked so much, we've seen so much about the coming of the Spirit and the empowering of the Spirit, and now we come to this example of the prompting and the direction of the Spirit, right? The way that the Spirit guides and speaks to each of us individually, to our hearts directly, and sometimes He does it almost imperceptibly as we learn more and more to hear and to recognize His voice. Now, you all are familiar with the story, 1 Kings 19, of the prophet Elijah. And after he had had this run in with the wicked Queen Jezebel, Elijah ran away. And hid in a cave, right? Seeking to hear from the Lord. In 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 11, it says, Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I love this story. It's one of my favorites because it was only after the thunder had ceased and the lightning was gone and the earth was still and the wind was hushed and there was this dead calm. Then... Out of the midst of the still air came what the Hebrew calls a voice of gentle silence. It was almost as if silence had become audible. And it was the Lord himself, through his spirit, quietly speaking directly to his child's heart. And I think so often for us, we are wanting, we are waiting to hear from God's spirit but we're waiting for some supernatural sign to come from heaven. 
right? We're waiting for some sort of miraculous occurrence or some sort of mystical manifestation. We're waiting for the Spirit to speak through a fire or through an earthquake or through a storm. And he certainly can do that. But in reality, God's desire to speak to us is through that gentle blowing, right? Through that still, small voice as his Holy Spirit quietly, calmly, personally, and intimately communicates to us. And sometimes it's just that sense that we should do this thing or that we should share this thought with that person. And it's usually something that otherwise we wouldn't find ourselves doing, and yet we just know that we ought to be doing it. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. That's the Holy Spirit as he leads us into a specific ministry that he has for us. And so I think it's an important question to ask ourselves, am I a Christian who's allowing myself to really be led by the Spirit? Am I starting out each and every day asking for his direction? Am I really open to that? Or have I just settled into this kind of a Christianity that's just kind of going through the motions? Because it's this type of a relationship with the Holy Spirit of hearing from him daily and being sensitive to his leading, this type of ordinary relationship This is what makes the Christian life exciting and makes it dynamic. And really, this is what makes the Christian life the Christian life. You remember when Jesus was with Nicodemus and he was talking about the new birth from above? And then Jesus says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then he says, The wind blows where it wishes, And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we who are born of the Spirit are meant to be moving in the Spirit. So when really was the last time you actually heard from him or listened for him or gave yourself the time to really seek him out? So here the pieces, the players are all assembled, right? We've got Philip there on the deserted road. We've got the Ethiopian returning from his trip. He's sitting there in his chariot. He's searching the scriptures. He's reading from Isaiah. It says in verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. We pray, God provides. When we're living this ordinary, dynamic, spirit-led state, right? when we're laying out our life under the control of the spirit, asking him to be the one to orchestrate the opportunities, one of our greatest parts in preaching the gospel becomes us simply praying for opportunities and then recognizing them and responding to them when God provides them. We just need to walk through the open doors. So coming up here, running alongside the chariot, hearing the Ethiopian reading from the scriptures, which was just the common practice back then, 
Philip knew at that moment that God had given him an open door. Here was this prepared heart. And clearly, it was the Lord who had arranged this chance meeting here on this deserted desert road between Philip and the Ethiopian. And here Philip walked, or actually, what? He ran right through the open door. And notice, not only was the man reading, but he had read right to a part that had filled his mind with questions and had stirred up his heart. And at that very moment he sees this stranger coming across the sands, running up alongside his chariot. And I love this whole account because I think that it proves to us that we can rest assured that the Lord will do whatever it takes to reach out to every person who wants to really know him. We see in the scriptures that even to his wayward, disobedient people who were running from him, The Lord promised through the prophet Jeremiah that you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. So on the day of judgment, no one is going to be able to say, you know, Lord, I really wanted to know you, but I just couldn't find you. Because God will always send a Philip to anyone who wants to know him. And that Philip could very well be any one of us in this room. Sometimes even in spite of ourselves, right? Aren't we glad that Philip responded to the Spirit's leading and then he didn't play the not now, not me, not, not their game? G. Campbell Morgan wrote this. He said that if Christ is hindered, it is because some Philip is not willing to go. But what I think happens when that happens is that the Lord will always just arrange for another Philip to go in his place, and to be the one to share in that blessing. Now, I have to confess, there have been times, many more than one, when I've sensed that the Spirit was prompting me to reach out to somebody and to share some specific encouragement with some specific individual, right? Either make a quick phone call or shoot off a quick text or meet for a cup of coffee or, you know, share a specific scripture with somebody that he placed on my hearts. And I said, but Lord, you know, look at my day. And, you know, of course, I showed him all of these super long lists of all these super important things that I just had to get done. And, of course, I didn't do what I knew he was telling me that I should do. And then, you know, the, the day passes. And then just as randomly as I had sensed that I should call a person, I get a call a couple days later from that person. Right, who starts to share with me that a couple days earlier they had really been struggling in their walk until they got a call from another dear brother right, who shared with them this specific scripture that spoke right to the heart of the problem. And of course, wouldn't you know, it's the very same scripture that the Lord told me that I should call and share with that brother. But I was just too caught up in my own thing to do it. Now, praise the Lord that he's so faithful. Praise the Lord that people are being ministered to, and yet I missed out on the blessing of just being obedient and being used by him. See, Philip 
was so especially effective, especially as an evangelist, because he knew how to flow with what the Spirit wanted to do. He didn't let his own agenda, his own feelings, or even his own fears get in the way, because let's not miss the fact, it probably took some boldness for Philip to run right up to the side of this Ethiopian's chariot and speak to him. He was a rich man. He was a man of power, and at least in some way, a sort of a celebrity. He probably had a bunch of Ethiopian secret service surrounding him. And yet Philip knew that he needed Jesus just as much as anyone needed Jesus. And running right up to that chariot was precisely what the Holy Spirit had told him to do. And so it only made sense that he had to do it. Right? The door was open, the man's heart was open, he was ready to receive Philip's ministry. He'd been reading along in Isaiah, and it says in verse 32 that the place in the scripture where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask of you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Now, do we not just love the way the Lord works? Think through this. Not only did he direct Philip to the desert, where he would find this chariot in the midst of a caravan, where he would find this Ethiopian who was seeking to know the Lord, who just happened to have a copy of a very expensive scroll. He just happened to be reading through the prophet Isaiah, but he also just happened to be in Isaiah chapter 53, which is one of the most significant one of the most powerful prophetic passages that points to the coming ministry of Jesus as the Messiah. And then he asks aloud, who precisely is this prophecy about? Now, we would have trouble making something like this up. We'd have trouble believing it would be true if it probably hadn't happened in each one of our lives at one point or another. At some point in our walk with the Lord, when we simply knew that he had divinely ordained every last detail of an encounter, and the only thing that was left was for us to show him Jesus. Right? Look in verse 35. It says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. You can circle that verse too. Did you know that the entire Bible, from beginning to end, is the revelation of Jesus Christ? Genesis 1.1, Jesus was the one who first spoke the world into existence, and he is also the one who will, in a time to come, Revelation 21.5, he will make all things new. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Psalm 93 says that his throne is established from of old, that he is everlasting. He is the Word of God, right? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We all know that the New Testament speaks clearly about Jesus, Right? His birth and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, all of it recorded for us there in the gospel accounts. His instruction 
for those who then would belong to him make up the rest of the New Testament in the letters. And yet for so many, it is so surprising that the Old Testament is also all about Jesus. Yes, it records real historical facts of real people in real places, but all of it points to Jesus, right? In patterns and prophecies and types, every page whispers his name. And this is exactly what Jesus said as he walked and talked after his resurrection. Remember, with the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, it says that beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look at us. Just in the last month of reading through the Bible together this year, we read through Genesis and Exodus. And so far, we've seen he, he's the creator. He's the tree of life. He's the seed, the promised redeemer, the covenant maker. He's Noah's ark, Jacob's ladder. He's the Passover lamb. He's Adam, Noah, Isaac, Joseph, Melchizedek, Moses. He's the manna. He's the rock. He's the tabernacle and everything in it. He is the land of Canaan to which they were trying to travel. And this is just a few examples from just the first two books of the Bible. And forget about Leviticus, right? All of the offerings, all of the feasts, the kinsman redeemer, the high priest, the atonement, all of it points to who? To Jesus. And yet here's the problem, is that too many Christians today are missing all of that because they are reading their Bibles in the wrong way. You know there are two ways to read the Bible? We can read the Bible looking for Jesus, or we can read the Bible looking for ourselves. And we live in a time that is becoming more and more self-centered. Never has there been a time, I think, when people are more narcissistic and individualistic. It's this me-focused, I-everything culture, right? With electronic everything to meet everybody's every want instantaneously. And so we're actually becoming more and more I-focused and not Christ-focused. And our faith has become equally focused on looking for what it is Jesus can do for us instead of rejoicing and resting in what he's already done for us at the cross and living in light of that. We absolutely always want to apply the word of God to our lives, but we can't fall into the trap of reading the Bible as if it's all about us because it is not all about us. It's about what? Jesus right? So this little mini rant was brought to you courtesy of simply wanting to remind us that we need to approach the word with this desire to find Jesus on every page. Every historical account, every song, every prayer, every teaching, everything, because that's how we're going to come to know him better. And like Philip, that's how we're going to be able to share him better with those around us, from this book, starting wherever somebody is, just like Philip did. No doubt Philip talked about much more than just this passage here in Isaiah, but notice that that's where he started. He started here with this 
common ground with the Ethiopian. And then he made his way all around uh, who Jesus is, what he's done for us. No doubt Philip told him the whole story. How Jesus came to earth and was born of a virgin and lived a holy life and was anointed by God and went about healing the sick and raising the dead and preaching the kingdom. And then got to the point how he finally fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah, dying there on the cross at Calvary and bearing the weight of our sins and iniquities. And then no doubt Philip would have gone on and he would have talked about how Jesus was buried in a tomb and how he came out of the grave and then how he commissioned his disciples to carry the gospel message, baptizing those who believe. And we can almost imagine it was right then at the climax of the message that it says in verse 36 that as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So do we see what's happening? Through the ministry of the word of God, focused on the work of the son of God, Delivered faithfully by a servant of God, the Holy Spirit of God has just opened up this man's understanding to the truth of God, and he was ready to publicly declare his faith in God. Philip, verse 37, said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, this is the simple confession that God calls for every sinner to personally make. Right? Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we have to believe in our hearts, right? Not just our heads. We have to believe in the person of Jesus. All that he is, all that he has done, as the Christ, right, the Messiah, the divine Son of God who was sent from the Father to accomplish the salvation of everyone who would believe in him with their hearts. This verse is about as clear a summary of the gospel as we could hope to find in the scriptures. And ironically, you may not even have this verse in your Bibles, depending on what translation you're using. Because there is a certain school of New Testament scholars who claim that this verse isn't found in all of the New Testament manuscripts. Now, I'm not going to go into a big debate this morning about this. But I will mention this. I find it very interesting that the few verses in the New Testament which always seem to be in dispute are most often those, just like this one, which powerfully point in some way to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And they are the very verses which I believe that the enemy would most gladly have us to call into question. The Ethiopian eunuch, right? At last he'd found what he was looking for. It wasn't this ritualistic religion. It was this dynamic relationship with Jesus. And so, verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. What a beautiful picture right here. This kind of impromptu roadside service. No doubt we have this entire caravan of servants and slaves and attendants and advisors who are looking on very curiously as their important master 
humbly submits himself to this rite of baptism into his newfound faith, right? This was his public declaration of his personal identification with Jesus, right? Of his death and his burial and his resurrection and being raised to new life. Now, again, I don't want to spend any more of our dwindling time this morning like staining this picture, opening up some can of worms about the ongoing discussion about the proper approach to baptism, whether it's sprinkling or whether it's immersion. I will just let the Spirit speak to the discussion as he notes through Luke that both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. They went into the water. Into the water is where they went. Further, verse 39, that says that when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So for the Ethiopian man, just as surprisingly as Philip had appeared next to his chariot, He's gone. And yet this time, we know that it was because he was supernaturally carried away or caught up, right? Transported, if you will, somehow by the Spirit to this former Philistine city of Azotus, which is also known as Ashdod. And then if you look on a map, he just made his way straight up the coast to Caesarea, which is where we're going to find him again once we get to chapter 21 where he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist, the only one in the New Testament to have that title. Here he is in Caesarea, still doing the work of the ministry. From this verse, I think we could easily say that Philip was really caught up in the ministry, wasn't he? Caught up in the ministry. Right? That's exactly where we want to be as ordinary Christians, right? We need to be caught up in the ministry every day, all the time, whatever we're doing. This whole catching away in the spirit thing may sound a little strange, and yet we have seen similar things like this in the scriptures. John 6, remember when Jesus got in the boat with the disciples and it said it immediately reached its destination. Genesis chapter 5, right? We read that Enoch walked with God and then he was not for God took him, which of course pictures for us what will also happen when the church is caught up together with him in the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4. Now I think in a sense this morning for all of us, these examples just remind us of what the ordinary, dynamic, spirit-filled, spirit-directed life should look like for each one of us every day. Now we may not be so fortunate as to be supernaturally transported, right? Star Trek style from one place to another. And yet we can still be available and we can be open and we can live our lives as if the Spirit was doing just that. Right? He's moving us here and he's using us there first in this place and then in that place as we're just open to and obedient to his leading and we're sensing his voice. For the Ethiopian, 
I don't get the sense that he was phased at all by Philip disappearing because he had Jesus. And he just went on along his way rejoicing, returning back home. No doubt his heart was overflowing. And in fact, the Coptic Christians, the largest Christian group today in Egypt, estimated at 30 million believers just today, trace their spiritual heritage back to this one Ethiopian official. Now it might make a little bit more sense to us why the Lord would call Philip away from the work that was immediately already established there in Samaria. Now I have to say, I love the story of Philip. Right? As a deacon, he's serving tables. In Samaria, he's working as an evangelist. In Gaza, right, removed from this very public arena, now he's ministering one-on-one to this Ethiopian eunuch. In Caesarea, we know that he found himself raising a family of four daughters who Acts 21 says all became prophetesses. So whatever he was doing, Philip was flowing in the ministry. Right? He was sensitive and he was responsive to what the Spirit was speaking to his heart for that season. And of course, I don't know Philip. We'll meet him someday. But I suspect that he was just as thrilled serving tables as he was preaching to the multitudes, as he was enthusiastic about talking to this Ethiopian, as he was about raising his daughters to be godly young women. Because life in the Spirit Life in the spirit is radically regular, right? And in our walk with the Lord and in our work for the Lord, like Philip, we're going to go through different seasons. But as we do, we can trust that there's always a time and a purpose for the Lord in it as the spirit speaks and he's giving us direction. And he's, you know, it's just so ordinary, but it works so beautifully. So we just need to trust the Lord. We need to go with the flow. We need to walk with him one step at a time and trust that he's going to lead us in a direction. He's going to lead us into ministry that we likely could have never imagined. We just need to ask ordinary Philip how it worked, right? Now this morning, we're going to finish up our time together by celebrating communion. What an opportunity to Remember the work of Jesus on the cross for us as we take and we consider the elements. The bread, of course, representing his broken body. The, the juice, of course, representing his blood shed for us. And an opportunity to think about the new life that he's given us and this ministry into which he's placed us. And to reflect on it not in the sense of anything that we have to be doing, but really in a sense through the price that he paid for us that we get to be doing. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, um, you can take care of that, and then you can take communion with us. There will be prayer counselors up here on uh, your left and on your right. There they are magically appearing. There's Marie, and there's going to be one more that's going to appear over here like magic. It's going to happen very soon. And when it does, it's going to be great. But you can go to these people and you can ask them. To, there goes Pastor Mike. He's appearing. You can uh, talk to them and they'll pray with you. And they can help uh, to lead you into that first step of starting out 
an ordinary relationship with the Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray, and then let's take communion uh, together. So, Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, and we thank you, um, Lord, just for the way that you bring encouragement to us through it, Lord, the way that you speak to us in the midst of it. And, Father, we thank you for all that it is that you've done for us in your son Jesus. Lord, as we consider that now, Lord, we pray that his sacrifice on the cross would never become common, Lord, and that as often as we do this, that we would remember him. So, Father, we pray that you would bless our time of communion now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Kissy will start to minister, and then at your convenience, you can come up and just take the elements back to your seat and take them on your own uh, as you're ready. Mm-hmm.